So I just got off the phone with someone who's pretty big on the comedy scene, and she gave us permission to share the fact that we're actually going to be launching a whole new series of Common Core math initiatives with her. Excuse me, but math isn't really our thing. That's what's cool. It's not really her thing either. She's actually come up with an entire system of how to measure the world, including social distancing, in Molly, Kirsten, and Samantha dolls. (laughs) That sounds right up my alley. As she says, how big is a football field? I don't know. Two weeks? You tell me that a football field is 100 yards long? That's, what, two and a half weeks? But if you told me that a football field was 200 Kirsten dolls long, now you're talking sense. Welcome, everyone, to American Girl, the podcast. This is the show where we're reliving the American Girl series book by book. I'm Mary. I'm still Allison. How are you, Allison? What's new? You know, I I didn't think that we'd still be talking about quarantine. I mean, no one else is, so Oof. that that burden's been relieved. But um, no, things things are going okay on my end. I'm so happy we're talking about Samantha today. Like, so happy. It is honestly such a source of joy in my life these days because you know I I'll just be honest, the fatigue of quarantine. And just also my incredible frustration with people acting like because it's nice out, it must be over um, is is really starting to get to me a little bit. So having something that is just like a pure net positive in my day, which this show 100 percent is, is really something to look forward to. I was thinking recently about, you know, the way that people were excited for the 1920s and the different ways that there must have just been such a trauma fatigue going into the 1920s that it's kind of a miracle that so many interesting things happened artistically. Yeah, that's actually true. I mean, how come people aren't just sort of hanging out? I mean, they were, but... (laughs) I mean, you know, people kept creating, people kept making, they were innovating. I mean, Samantha taught us all about progress this week. She sure did, yeah. Wow. And Edith, please don't write Edith out of this story. I, I would never. In our moment, it's like things that are giving me joy is getting to read new books that are coming to my house, getting library books finally. Thank you so much to my local librarians. They are my municipal heroes at the moment. Mm -hmm. Also watching Selling Sunset, knowing that you're watching it. Allison, this show. I mean, first of all, I saw you texted me that you were watching it. And I remember dropping down on the show when it first hit Netflix because I will watch literally any real estate centered show. I love going on Zillow house tours when I'm not looking for a home. So, I mean, that's like, I mean, you know, my love of a TikTok house tour. Also quick aside, shout out to the listener whose name escapes me right now, but you are a absolute hero. One of our listeners knows that I love house tours. So as a wedding gift, she filmed herself giving a tour of her house and sent it to Anna and I, and it absolutely made my day, delighted me, and I love her style choices. She paints the back of her doors different colors. It's very neat. Anyway, quick aside. Selling Sunset, I don't know why I didn't just like take it all in at once. Maybe my I had too much joy still. Like I hadn't <laughs> declined enough yet. Last night, I dropped down on Selling Sunset after you were watching it, and it's truly like it feels like Xanax. It feels yes. just like such a calming effect. I'm not going there to have any deep thoughts. 
I don't think they're going to have any deep thoughts, but it's like, what is the appeal of this show? What is it doing to us? So a wise person told me that part of why I may be liking it is it's by the same team that made the OC Hmm. when it was very good and Hmm. those kinds of shows. So it's also kind of a very specific hit of nostalgia where it is the same kind of dynamic as those old reality shows where these people are both fully savvy that they are on a reality show, but they're still faking it like they don't know. Yep. Yeah. And it's, I think there's this also thing going on with it too, where we could get into how the other half lives and how Samantha is and is not aware of that book or that concept in her life. But I think shows like this allow you an entree in a very uncomplicated way into how the other half or 1% lives in our world today without any kind of moral judgment of how the structural capital issues and inequalities that create the kind of wealth where someone can say, like, find a buyer who makes who's worth two hundred fifty million dollars, as they (laughs) did on the episode I watched last night. Like, that's insane. But at a certain point, you just want to lay back and be like, I want to see some really ugly, huge mansions that are being sold for prices that I can't fathom. It's also if you watch Keeping Up with the Kardashians years ago, Kim was kind of a trendsetter, I think, or was reflective of a trend. I'm not sure. But I live in an old Victorian house. But she had everything so white, so monochrome, so basic, so pared down. And now it feels like every house that we see on this show is very much that same way. And I think part of what I enjoy about it is I would not want to live in any one of these houses. Nope. Never. I'm not a modern architecture person. I love mid-century modern. That's about as modern as I'll get. But watching them live in like basically institutional aesthetics by choice where they're like, I need all the walls to be white. I need like the vault ceilings where I'm watching and I'm thinking like your heating bill is insane or like your air conditioning bill is insane because of this. But again, I have to remind myself like these are not the practical concerns of anyone on this show. No. Like never. (laughs) No, I mean, concern about the environment, concern about other people, not really like high on their priorities usually. the women who are real estate agents on this show, at least two of them at the time of my watching, have long distance relationships. And by that, I mean, one of them is her husband lives in Miami, question mark. The other one, and this is the one I'm concerned about, her boyfriend plays minor league hockey in Slovakia. He was just traded to Sweden. And I'm like, this isn't going to work out, ma'am. So I think the purpose of her relationship specifically is we also see something I think the show is actually really smart about is kind of revealing how these women are constantly put in positions where they're vulnerable and they're sexualized. And men basically trick them into bunches that are dates and not business opportunities. And I think in some ways the Slovakian hockey player boyfriend is a buffer Mm. like it, it's a it's a reason that's like real enough, but also not a time commitment. And she at one point takes a phone call. It's very contrived, but she takes a phone call and she then quote like makes an error with designing. And it's like the phone call is not the issue. And her boss calls her out on it. And she says, like, I let my personal life get in the way. And he nods when that's actually not what happened at all. <laughs> but I like that everyone kind of is like. I think they're all in on it, which is why I can enjoy it. I don't like when people aren't in on the narrative, right? 
Yeah, I agree with that. Also, their workspace is so is such chaos. And it like <laughs> I just said to you off air, like open floor plan is one of the great tragedies of the 21st century that no one wants to talk about. But that's deeply yeah. how I feel. They're all working in one room at these like, you know, looked like reclaimed hardware desks and or tables, basically. And they have laptops that clearly like probably aren't even turned on for all I know. <laughs> But it's like the chaos of being in an open floor plan workspace, if anyone out there has this experience, it is such a nightmare because everyone is hearing everything you do and you can't. Now, it works for the show because when the hockey boyfriend phones in, everyone's like, ooh, like what's going on? And you obviously already know because you've heard both sides of the conversation. But to me, that is my absolute nightmare. Like I need to be able to close a door like in a work setting on a group trip, there needs to be a moment when I can say, if I need to shut a door, I'm shutting a door. And maybe that's just me. I don't know. So years ago, I was looking through these like early 20th century sources of like women who worked in factories, but who worked in secretarial positions, right? In this community near where I live. And they would often feature like photos of their workspace. And it was pretty much one big room with a bunch of wood tables. And then each person had their own, um, like some of them were doing like rudimentary accounting and others were doing typing. And I only say rudimentary because they would not get hired to do like the higher level jobs, which they were probably capable of, but this is what they're doing at their desks. And there's always like two men near the front of the room who seem to be mostly watching. And that's actually the same dynamic on selling sunsets. And there's a very funny scene where Christine is talking about things that are not work. And then Mary, who kind of is always like, I think she kind of brings the room down, but that's okay. Yes. She says like, you know, maybe we should get back to work. And then Christine affects a kind of like fake Dickensian accent and goes into Oliver Twist. Sir, I'm so sorry. We're not talking about real estate, sir. Please don't punish me. I'm so sorry. And then she pretends to be typing. And it's just a very funny scene of like, what these people have and have not internalized because they've deeply internalized like a troubling work ethic and like consumption ethic. Yes. And at the same time, they're very absurd and funny or it wouldn't be worth watching. Well, as I told you, I epically failed trying to take a screenshot on my phone to send to you of Christine (laughs) basically saying, I'm so tired of having to filter myself and apologize. And she was actually talking about a situation she and a conflict she engineered. Like, I think rightfully (laughs) so. But she was like, I don't understand why everyone is having conflict with me. And it's like, well, you did start this fight like very overtly. But she's the hero of the show to me because she just says stuff that is so out of pocket, but is so real. Like she goes up to Heather, who's another the person with the hockey boyfriend, and basically says, like, you and I are not friends. And she doesn't say it in a mean way. It's like she's saying, My hair is brown. She's or my hair is blonde. She's like, You and I are not friends. And that both person are true. Both are true. <laughs> both are true. <laughs> Heather responds by saying, But what if no, we're not friends, but what have I ever done to you? And like I said to you off here, that was such a stunning revelation of how she misinterprets what friendship is, which is like, just because you don't have a problem with someone doesn't mean that that automatically makes you friends. No. Like, it's a mutual choice to spend time together and, you know, like, have some kind of relationship. Instead, she's basically like, by default, I have, like, 100 friends because I don't have a problem with 100 people. And Christine was like, no, I don't think so. I love them a lot. And I think it's an interesting show about, like, work 
dynamic about, like I said, kind of like the way that they're supervised or not by these men whose like own roles are sort of unclear. I I chuckled when they had a, a morning like get together and it was like, you know, our goal is 200 million. We need to clear 200 million in commissions, <laughs> which is like a cartoonishly evil goal, but is also probably real. It's probably real. And yet, like, the best these men can do in terms of sartorial choices is wearing, like, a leather blazer a la, like, Ross Geller circa 1998 with an untucked button-down shirt. Like, I'm sorry, that was an assault to my senses. And there should have been some kind of warning. Like, I'm just saying. I don't know. I'm just saying. It's so much. It's so cartoonish. And, like, we started our week by me making you watch episode one of Mariah's World, which I will not apologize for. But, like. Nor should you. That's another show that's like cartoonishly over the top, but it's like that's kind of what I need in these times. And Sweet Magnolia is like cartoonish in a completely different direction. And that's also been something that I took in that I never thought I would watch in a million years because it's insane. But there's something about that show that's just so like calming. It's like you do not you will not be required to use one brain cell (laughs) as you sit through this program. No, and it sort of reminds me of, you know, kind of another similarity. I've become very interested in, like, the tightness of celebrities' faces and the degree to which, like, they have engineered a tightness that is not possible past, like, one's entrance into the world as a newborn. Sure. Um, But I find, I find, like, what's interesting about that show, they're, they're kind of, like, upper middle class successful people but I could picture them at an Ann Taylor. Like, they're still kind of oh, achievable. Yeah. They have relatable problems. Um, that show is, like, definitely worth your time. It's sort of like a comforting novel. And it is based on a novel, which I've heard is very good. But it's sort of like a fanny flag experience. It's like if Debbie Maycomer attended one Obama rally. <laughs> that's what Sweet Magnolia is. It's like a Hallmark movie show, but slightly more risque because we know that they have sex. We don't see it, but they'll talk about hooking up with people they're not married to, which is not which is verboten on Hallmark. I think also there's a gay character, which is also not a Hallmark situation. But well, it's a it's a town that is both remarkably diverse and a town where no one has anything to say about race, which also means that there are underlying problems which are not part of the show. If your town hall was the Chili's. <laughs> yeah, that's the show. That's this show where they're like, yeah, there's a lot. There's a lot sizzling both explicitly and under the surface. We won't acknowledge either thing. The main character. So the main character to me is not interesting at all. And I won't even go into this, but she was on Reba. I do want to know if her husband like bought her this part. I don't have the research notes for that but the other two friends are played by the person who is the star of drop dead diva which honestly if you could survive the premise of that show you can do whatever you want i don't care second person her name is heather headley i think she to me will ever forever be famous because in my eighth grade field trip to new york which i was like well this is big time i'm going to new york um i had to have lunch at the harley davidson cafe hold your applause really on brand for me And then we got to see Aida, which is a musical made by Elton John and his writing partner who made The Lion King together. And this was like in no way as much of a hit to me. Like she was so phenomenal. And I still love the music from that musical. So the minute I saw she was in it, I was like, I will watch because of you. And I'm happy that you have this opportunity. And I wish the woman who played Barbara Jean on Reba was the lead person and not that person. 
Like if we were going to take a minor player from Reba and recast her, it should have been the woman who played Barbara Jean, Gavel. I don't I don't have anything to add. <laughs> <laughs> I I'm I'm still kind of reeling. Someone described us on Twitter as like half sophisticated retrospective and like half bachelor hot takes. And I wow. I disagree with that quantification. Okay. But it's not what's been going on in the I know there's some things going on in the online AG community that we wanted to cover briefly. We do. And I I think the way that we want to talk about it is a little bit of a contrast. There's been on Instagram uh, a kind of reckoning among the AG IG community. There's been some problems that have been there for a long time that people are talking a lot more openly about in terms of racism within that community and people inappropriately staging black dolls or using certain accoutrements from black dolls, specifically Addie, in other scenes and and not really respecting um, cultural elements. But there's also been a conversation that we were tagged in and, and grateful to be tagged in on Instagram that was really respectful about becoming an adult and recognizing that you read Felicity away when you were 7 to 12 or 15 years old. And that now, if you are one of our comparably aged peers, you might think about it differently because one, you've had more education and two, you live in a different time. And there are probably plenty of people who read Felicity as a young person. And just like that excuse like of their time does not, does not say much. If you were a reader who understood slavery, a black reader of Felicity, you saw very clearly how black people were represented and probably signaled that it was a problem a lot faster than we did mm-hmm. and many other people. Mm-hmm. That's a fact. But what I appreciated was there were people in the historical reenactment community, some of which just like made a mention of our show saying like it's a sign of growth to change your mind and to say if your education and your background didn't cue you into that being a problem, now you've been given more information and changing your mind is a good thing. Um, I just wanted to read a tweet about what was happening there because it spilled over onto other platforms. Kendra James um, says, over IG, there is a mini come to Jesus moment happening in the American Girl Doll community concerning the depiction of slavery in the Felicity books. And it's really nice to see. No one is arguing. It's a bunch of women who agree that Felicity let slavery off way too easily. And they're discussing actionable steps, steps amicably. And I really appreciated that. I think that's that's exactly what should happen. Um, Can we also talk a bit about what happened on Facebook? Please do. Yeah. So there was an old tweet that got pulled out this week and went kind of viral again um, from a user named Not Laja. And she says, sometimes I think about how American Girl really advertised and sold a slave doll in the 90s. This is not a recent tweet. So someone kind of went looking for it. And people responded in a lot of different ways. And we can post some screenshots if you haven't seen it. But um, a lot of the response was kind of burying this person's critique and justifying different decisions that Pleasant Company has made, you can appreciate Addie's story and also recognize that for a lot of people, it was very hurtful that the first story that represented Black women in this company started as slavery and it was marketed mostly to white people. Yes. Yes. I think there's so much with that right now where there's this kind of like false expectation that we should be able to 
as historians, put things in context and maybe try to understand why certain people in different moments make different decisions. But that doesn't mean that you can foreclose the very real hurt that those decisions caused in the lives of people to whom they affected on different levels. So a different version of this is that there's um, HBO Max, I guess, has launched and they had gone with the wind on their their platform originally and they just pulled it. And a lot of people are saying, like, well, this isn't fair because obviously in 1939, people thought about the interpretation of the Civil War differently. And it's like, yes, that's true for some people. And there were a lot of people in 1939 who found that movie and its depiction of enslaved people and the employment of black actors at disproportionately unequal rates to be completely inappropriate and hurtful. And, you know, so it's like we have to make space for that critique and for those very real feelings. Like in the same way, I, I like how respectful the conversation has been around Felicity that you described. And I wish there was that equal respect in this Addy conversation. And it's, it's, it's upsetting not to be. It reminds me of, you know, in our Patreon episode, we talked about the gospel according to Andre, about Andre Leontali, who is a longtime Vogue editor. And it inspired me to go read his memoir, which has just come out. And I highly recommend it to anyone who's interested. And in that memoir, he talks about a photo shoot he styled for Vogue in which he did a Gone with the Wind theme, but he Mm -hmm. reverse cast it and had elite white fashion designers play the black parts in the movie. And he basically says, I would not do it the same way now. This was in the mid nineties, but essentially when he was pitching this, a lot of people were basically saying, why are you so upset about gone with the wind? It's a classic film. And he basically was saying like, as a black, I'm a black person. You have no idea what this feels like to watch that movie. Like you can't be a black person and watch that movie and not be upset. And the fact that they wouldn't make space for him to even like have that conversation was in many ways more upsetting than, a lot of the other conversations that were explicitly about race that he was a party to in his career. So I think it's just really important to make space for, for those feelings. There, you know, and there was some responses of people saying that like, you know, she's self-liberated and, and, you know, it's a small piece of the books, but I, I think part of the problem is that person is still allowed to feel that way. Like that person has like every right to feel that way. A lot of the responses were along the lines of like, don't disrespect Addie. These books teach really important lessons. And I think kind of the point of our show is that that conversation needs to move to a yes and. Yes. Like a thing can be really important to you and you can hold it up later and say, I understand it differently. Right. And I think that's part of the benefit of rereading books that were meaningful in childhood as adults, because, of course, one of the hallmarks of being an adult and hopefully emotionally mature adult is the ability to hold more than one emotion at the same time. Mm -hmm. So I can both be really frustrated with the fact that Pleasant Company chose to depict its first black doll as an enslaved person. And I can recognize and appreciate how important those stories were for readers um, when it first debuted and still now as an entry point into conversations about really important history and ideas in our country. So I think that's the both and is what what's needed right now. And I hope that, you know, I hope that conversation moves in that direction. But, you know, it's a scary time right now and it's a really sad right time right now in terms of like trying to facilitate and have mature conversations about race. Yeah. And, you know, dolls are part of that. <laughs> dolls have dolls are part, part of that. Of and that. I really I'm curious about that. Did you hear that the next historic doll is set in 1986? I did. I think I saw Acid Wash. <sighs> there's a there's a Walkman. 
Yes. Which, oh my God, like, first of all, the fact that we're old enough, I was born in 1986, to literally be history. I mean, yeah. I'm spiraling about that. I'm not in it. Like, my birthday's at the end of the month. As we know, we were approaching Leo season. Hate to bring that up. But, you know, when you see yourself kind of as as a historical artifact, like that does do something to you, because in my mind, these dolls were in a very distant past. And now it turns out it's not that distant. But not I'm, anymore. Not anymore. But I'm fascinated to see what kind of stories are we going to get of the 1980s? And are, are there going to is there going to be a pressure to work in kind of super or meta storylines or themes from the history of, of the 1980s into this doll's life? The distance from Molly's time to the creation of Pleasant Company is about the same as this doll to our present moment. I but no, I can't sit with that. They're smart and they also know that the generation that still maintains some of the most intense investment, this is like their birth year. Yeah. So it's it works on many levels. Like But it's like this could go sideways real fast because if we get any kind of like pro Reagan stuff. Yeah. I will be disappointed. But it's also like, how do you not, how do you work in AIDS, which was a major defining moment in our history in the 80s, and not have it be like subtle, like a freight train (laughs) or handled (laughs) in a really tone deaf way? You know what I'm saying? And it's like, but then if you avoid all of those super topics, are we then going to get storylines that are like, her learns a lesson is like basically taking the plot line of, don't tell mom the babysitter's dead or weekend at Bernie's. That. Like, is that the kind of lesson we're going to learn? I, I don't know, but I'm I'm ready to talk about what Samantha learns. I think we have to. I think it's time. I Before th- we jump right into that book, though, I just want to yes. make one announcement, which is this month, our Patreon episode, we will be talking about the brand new, speaking of the 80s in 1986, the brand new Babysitter's Club series debuting on Netflix. So we will be likely live tweeting the first episode, which we'll watch together, Allison and mm-hmm. I. And then we want to invite our patrons to join our Discord channel on a date that we will announce very soon on our social media to watch the last two episodes together. So there's 10 episodes, 9 and 10 are part 1 and part 2. We're going to watch them together on our Discord channel. If you joined us when we watched It Takes Two, you'll know that it was a really fun event, fun night. Um, we can all use a little levity at this stage of the game and babysitters club was definitely a formative series for me. So for our Patreon episode, we'll both be, um, talking about the series that we watch. And I think we're going to reread book one just so we can kind of compare the original Canon series with this latest adaptation. So we're very excited to do that and we hope you'll join us. I can't wait. All right. So without further ado, let's get into learning a lesson with Samantha. This episode is brought to you by Podcorn. Podcorn is a marketplace connecting podcasters to advertisers for native podcast sponsorships. What does that actually mean? Well, for our purposes, it means that we don't have to run ads on our show for products and services we don't believe in. We take this community really seriously, so we've in an ongoing way been trying to match with products that actually meet our mission and our values and are things that we're proud to support. So Podcorn has been a really wonderful service where we've been able to log on to their site and find a bunch of advertisers who want to work with us that we're excited to work with as well. If you're 
you're a creator and you're looking for brands that you might want to work with, Podcorn is a great option. They have a marketplace mission to give podcasters transparency, creative freedom, and control. And you never give up exclusive rights to your podcast. Click the link in our show notes to learn how to sign up and to learn more about Podcorn. That's right. So just head over to podcorn.com and get started today. Okay. So our publisher, our trusty publisher, once again, giving us the the summary, Samantha attends Miss Crampton's Academy, a private school for proper young ladies. Indeed. Samantha wants to win the gold medal in the speaking contest, but she's worried about Nellie, the poor servant girl who has become her friend. If she can teach Nellie to read, maybe the boys and girls at school will stop calling Nellie dummy and ragbag. That's not okay, but we'll talk about it. Samantha sets up a school in Grand Mary's tower room and becomes Nellie's teacher. But Nellie teaches Samantha some very important lessons, too. Wow. I really, this book, both books have really made me laugh and just really think about a lot of different things. I'm really enjoying this series. What did you think of this book, Allison? I I feel like a eugenics family planner (laughs) wrote that description, like, with the way that they're talking yeah. about class and intelligence. Um, yeah. So we're really enjoying these books. And a few people wrote to us saying that this was among their favorites in the series because it's kind of where we start to see Samantha evolve from still sort of a, you know, an involved young person to like really learning Nellie's backstory. And part of me longs for just Nellie to have her own life her own platform but mm-hmm. um part of this is like framing Nellie's story through the prism of Samantha's privilege like what does it look like through her eyes and what is it like for Samantha to go to school in 1904 yeah and I think this is kind of a moment that sort of cries out for a fanfic interpretation because reading this book I really did wonder what this would read like if we centered Nellie instead of Samantha, like reading these same events from Nellie's perspective. Like, can you imagine what Nellie's internal monologue was when she heard Samantha's speech? Yeah, so that summary really does not tell you what goes on in this particular book at all. Um, Much like the first book, many plot points all over the place. Yeah, wild. Samantha attends Miss Crampton's Academy for Girls, which is basically in a large house, and it's a very small school. It's mostly like elite children like Samantha and Edith, who will we'll get into Edith, uh, Harriet alert. Um, but so they attend this school, and part of what comes out in this book is Nellie and her family have now become staff at a house down the street from Grand Mary's house, and Grand Mary has hooked all of this up. Mm-hmm. But we're learning that Nellie has actually not had an opportunity to go to school, and now that it's been presented, she's anxious and ambivalent about it because she feels like she's quote too old which was kind of a shocking a (laughs) shocking revelation yeah we talked about this off air but kindergarten was still barely a thing for people at this time right so the notion that between eight and ten years old she's far too old to start school (laughs) is not real not real nope Um, But she's anxious about it, and she kind of has good reason to be, because children mock her for not being where she should be in the schooling system. Right. And the lesson she ultimately teaches Samantha is about 
why she wasn't in school, right? Her life as a factory worker and why that kept her outside of public school. Yeah. And I think it also kind of asked Samantha to be more reflective about, you know, the kinds of narratives that her education is providing her, both about um, her own life and her expectations for her life, but also about what's really going on in the world that she finds herself in. Because the con- she's involved in a speech competition at her school. And this, to me, rang many personal alarm bells because, you know, we've all been involved in these speech competitions. Allison, I don't want to get into this, but, like, we both were in the D.A.R.E. The dare competition, for those of you out there who know what that is. That was a, a rough time for us all. Um, but also, like, thinking about being in, like, plays when you're that old in school, which, again, even more traumatic for me, won't get into it. But, you know, and thinking, too, about when I read the scene where she gives her first speech at her actual school before she goes to, like, the finals, so to speak, at a different um, building, maybe could have been the town hall. Um, It reminded me of, I know you haven't seen it, Allison, but the 1980s um, Anne of Green Gables is the canon version to me of adaptations. I will not engage any others. Megan Fellows deserves whatever the Canadian version of the Presidential Medal of Freedom is. But there's an incredible scene where she recites as Anne, the highwayman, in front of a group of Victorian ladies wearing outfits that come jump straight out of the Samantha illustration. So if I, I went and watched that clip because to me, it brought me back to like that spirit, which is like women from a kind of privileged position, either reciting poetry to show off a certain kind of skill that they'll never be called on to use except as like after dinner entertainment in their adult lives. But here we have Samantha actually being asked to write, to research and write a speech on um, progress in America. That's the theme. Yikes. Yes. And so they give examples on page 28 of what they might mean by that. And these are the examples given by their teacher, Miss Crampton, which I'm like, that's a weird name for a teacher. It's like, does she give you a cramp? Like, there's There's been a lot of weird naming conventions in this book, but... Yes. So she says, think of all the inventions that have changed our lives. The telephone, the steam engine, electric lights, and so many more. Talk to your parents and read books to get ideas. Um, so she casts about for different ideas. That's where things get really wild for me because... She talks about she talks to Grand Mary who like predictably now we've said this like maybe off air, but we can't age this woman for (laughs) like this woman could be 45. She could be 60. Like we have no idea. Would love to see a birth certificate, but she's like things aren't as great as you think they are. Like she does the classic older person move that's like narratives of progress aren't real, basically. She's like, telephones, I guess. Like, if you need your maid to call the store or if there's, like, an emergency and you need to call the doctor, like, I guess that's fine. But, you know, things aren't all what you think they are. And then she (laughs) talks to the maid. I forget what she recommends. The butler, Hawkins, recommend he brings up factories. And he basically says you can make a lot of things more cheaply. It's amazing. Then she takes it to Uncle Guard. Now, my one critique of this book is that we do not get nearly enough Uncle Guard. But when he does show up, it's to play lawn tennis alone. Cornelia's MIA dot dot dot. He shows up with it, the love of his life, his car. And, you know, he's basically like, what about cars? Dot dot dot. Too much. 
and she settles on factories. But Allison, the whole time I was reading this, especially because the part one of this book when we're at her school and they kind of take you through the exposition is like, here's what a day in her life at school would be, which was really interesting because I forgot how much emphasis there was on physical hygiene and calisthenics. Mm hmm. And I kind of want to drop down on that for a second, because I think that that's signaling a kind of progress that the books doesn't want to talk about, but surely would have been part of this conversation. And that's eugenics. This book, in a lot of ways, was like born out of like every interest I had about the progressive era. Like I told every, you, I this know. book is your book. I know when you were saying like, Allison, you liked this book because it's so you like rigidly playing school even when it was supposedly for fun there's no need to not take it seriously right that's my nightmare public speaking contests like these are all like this it like checks every it checks every box for you stuff about labor history like it's everything to me there's something really interesting um and i've seen photos of women playing basketball at school around this same time and they're very much dressed as samantha is there's a lot happening here where, like, I feel like Edith is a drop-in for another Roosevelt reference. And I think Tell me. part of <laughs> so I think part of what's not being said but is, like, very much here, Samantha's being raised in a culture that is telling her that rich people are better and inventions are the same thing as progress. Like, inventions necessarily make life better. And things like calisthenics and, like, her very rigid training to be a lady, like, very specifically, she's being trained to be a very specific kind of woman who will marry a man of her same race, her Mm -hmm. same background. She will associate with people in the same way. But she is the kind of person who in 10 or 12 years is going to go to college because she's still going to be fired up by things. She's not going to want to marry right away or ever And she's the kind of person that Teddy Roosevelt will give speeches about because that is not his idea of progress. It's like women who learn, women who exercise, women in control of their bodies, who also primarily serve as rearing children that replicate their class and social status. Yeah, I mean, ideally what he would want is for someone, a woman to develop um, kind of, there was a real prize of self-control in this period you know, speaking from a medical perspective, if you went to a psychiatrist, which is a new profession in this moment, the what psychoanalysis was in 1904 was literally suggesting to someone that they adopt greater self-control. That's it. Mm. So like Freud's not here yet. That's what psychoanalysis is. But that's everywhere in the culture. So Teddy Roosevelt was obsessed with self-control. So many of the progressives were. And all of these things were allegedly a path to you having greater control over yourself. But for women, that was supposed to, as Allison is saying, suggest that you control yourself in terms of developing your body and your mind and learn painting in the afternoon and do those insane um, learning how to swim without water exercise, which that photo in the back of the book blew my mind. I felt like the author just found that photo and was like, I will find a way to work this into the book, which I respect. Um, That was crazy to me. But at the end of all of this, as Allison's saying, when you marry someone to serve civilization, which is yet another idea people are obsessed with at this time, you have to voluntarily, the sign of your power as a woman is to surrender it and then to retreat to the home. Because being a mother producing the next air quotes race of Americans, white elite Americans, that's the greatest thing you can do. And I don't I think you're right. I don't think that would be enough for Samantha. And it is subversive. Someone wrote to us um, and was saying that, you know, usually the trajectory is like getting to go to school 
and we're joining Samantha while she's already in school and the lesson is something that her classroom environment, her teacher can't teach her. Her lesson has to come from another person. Mm. It's also so interesting to read that right now through the prism of we're in a different place as a society and people saying it's not the burden of the oppressed to teach you how you should not be an oppressor, right? Like that's actually not a burden people should have to carry. The knee bends sent me. One of the first things, so this is where I knew I was like, I'm becoming a Samantha convert. I'm not one, but I'm becoming like a, you know, as as someone mentioned to us on Instagram, a Samantha. Ooh, I like yeah. that. So something I love, and I find this passage so haunting. I did a, a terrifying rendition, maybe not terrifying. I did a rendition of it. This is straight out of a horror film. And then you sent it to me with no context. I just got this nope. audio file. Okay, proceed. Some- Something pokes Samantha in the back. Samantha jumped slightly, but she didn't look up. She knew the signal. It was from Helen. Okay, so Helen is passing a note with a naughty word, which we'll get into in a minute. But, like, out of context, it's like, is Samantha a hostage? Yes. Which I love that they start there. So the the bad word is she says, like, what in the dickens? Yep. Love I want to... I want to cut a little bit early to a Goodreads review that, like, really spoke to me. Um, Jennifer gave us reasons to read and reasons not to read this. She calls this a simplistic and flimsy plot, which I... Sure. But then possible objectionable content. Use of the word Dickens. (laughs) Children passing notes in school behind teachers' back with no consequences. Mention of injuries of child children working in factories. It's like, these are not all the same. I don't understand what any of those objections are about. Like, is Dickens still considered a swear? Like, she wanted a content warning for But even Dickens. Samantha's like, it's almost a swear. Right, and that was 116 years ago. Right, so I'm like, what's happening here? I I also loved, so the opening part is she's saying, like, what in the Dickens? And they're supposed to be learning what La Gorge means, um, translating French to English. And it means the throat, and then they get into the speeches, and it's, like, all very nicely tied together. And I was like, that's what this book goes for. <sighs> that's true. I think it's like triggering for you too because one of our core differences as people is like I really love gym class in school and you were absolutely traumatized by gym or like you do not enjoy gym class. Like I loved playing sports growing up. So for me, it was like when's gym? Can't wait. Let's do it. And for you, it was an absolute no-go situation. It was a no-go. The speech contest really excited me. There's a like level c character ida who's like i'm terrified i have to fake sick and it was like just get out like so i love the idea of this speech contest i love where they take it to it got me investigating what is real out of this story and it's very much again in the vein of kirsten the mount bedford ladies club is not exactly real but mount bedford is modeled on mount kisco new york which is 50 miles north of new york city um, and these are all based on real places. They are just not themselves real places. Okay. Fair I just, enough. I felt like you needed to know that. I, I appreciate know. that. I do appreciate that. I think it's interesting that they kind of give all these young girls a forum to speak their mind based on original content. Like, 
I have something I want to say. And then basically 10 years from now, everyone's going to be like, Samantha, that's cute, but we're not really, we're not super interested. No. And I was very struck by the framing of it, you know, progress in America. Samantha starts by talking about factories as the epitome of American progress and then reels it back. And after Nellie gives her information that is like deeply haunting and traumatizing about her own time in factories, Samantha changes her mind And I think this is probably what's interesting about this. We talked a lot about like how Samantha feels guilt or doesn't and the way she moves through the world in the last book. I can tell you for a fact, most people do not fundamentally think of factories as bad places. They they do not think of even the oppressive work that they hear about as being in and of itself bad. Mm. Like, truly the most unrealistic part of this book is Samantha's almost immediate transformation as a rich person to believing yes. it is bad. <laughs> and and I think that's a wonderful thing because I think set the bar high. You yeah, know? <laughs> I thought that was a. I also flagged that. And I thought even more so that Grand Mary, like, immediately was, like, the person who starts the slow clap when people are so stunned. And she's like, wow, amazing. And it's like, no, excuse me, you're upset by cars, like you were upset by telephones, you have shown that you were not upset by clear and distinct class differences. And I think the prospect of child labor also doesn't super bother her, except when it's right in front of her face in the form of Nellie. But I mean, and also there's this fascinating exchange where Grand Mary says to Samantha, like Samantha gets teased by Edith, who is sort of like the Harriet of this book about the fact that she's publicly seen playing with Nellie as an equal. And Edith and friends basically say, like, you would play with a servant girl. Like, that's so inappropriate. It's so wrong. And really echoing, like, really strong values of the time. So Samantha is is understandably confused by this. And I think Grandmary doesn't help because early in the book on page nine, she has um, the grumpy maid tell Samantha, like, you have a friend waiting in the parlor. So she calls Nellie. Grandmary calls Nellie Samantha's friend. Then by page 34, after Samantha gets teased for being seen with Nellie, and she's genuinely confused by this, she says, why is it wrong for me to play with Nellie? And Grammary says, like, you're not playing with her, you're helping her. And that's an important distinction. Mm-hmm. And I found that really fascinating and a really interesting way of kind of articulating in a way that kids maybe could appreciate or not, but at least putting it in the terms of childhood interactions, that these are not equal playing fields, like literally they're on in completely different trajectories with different expectations. So I think that's what makes it weird when grammar is like, obviously like child labor is wrong and like shut all this stuff down. Like that just didn't super ring true. Like I'm happy they did that, but it's like, that didn't seem realistic. There's a really deep tension in this book too, that is very much reflective of the time, which is grand Mary assists Nellie and her family, including her sister Bridget, with basically getting new jobs, right? And like relocating them and and having this new kind of situation. So she's not just handing them enough money where they could not work and be children, but she is fundamentally okay with it because it's their mode of survival. One of the real points of friction right at this time was the challenge over children in agricultural work, children in what they called Mm. homework or piecework. Um, And there's a lot of books on this which show that people who were 
financially very vulnerable who were in like lower classes, particularly in New York City, fought viciously sometimes against child labor laws because they knew they couldn't survive off of only parents working. Mm. So it's not as if they actually want their kids to be working. They can't survive unless their children are able to earn an income. Um, and the framing of this, honestly, in the peak into the past is really a problem. It's mm. like really a misrepresentation because it talks about child labor laws. I just want to hop there for a second. Even though there were laws that said children should not work, some poor children disobeyed them so they could earn money to help their families. Um, this is, like, not really true, actually, in 1904. There are many places where children are openly working and many places where uh, sanctions against child labor are certainly not – they're not just not enforced. They're not the rule at all. And then it kind of, like – notes the children would fall asleep in school because they were tired and like implicitly shames them and it felt like such a bizarre perspective um like children like have, have you asked a child to do something recently like yeah children didn't just decide they wanted to work they they wanted to eat yeah but when also like you're privileging children with the capacity to make decisions for the family when obviously that's not the power dynamic in families then or now, like no child would wake up at age six and be like, dad, just want to let you know I'm quitting school and I'm going to work in the factory down the street to help support the family. It's like, that's not what happens. No. And, you know, I think I literally saw that paragraph and was like, this is so strange to shame children in a book that's designed for children. And I really did wonder if they just found that photograph. I know I was kidding before about the swimming with no water photograph and saying like, oh, I'm going to work that into the book. There's a photograph in Peek into the Past of kids literally asleep at their desk yes. in night school. And I really did wonder, like, did whoever wrote this part say hey, I found this really awesome photograph and it's going to be relatable to kids now who are bored at school. So I'm going to put this in there and then just sort of like work the history around it. Like I'm not being facetious. Like I genuinely wonder if that's what happened. Well, in contrast that, right? So, I mean, there's a lot of this tension, particularly in communities that are not homogenous, right? Like highly diverse communities with people from all over the world, right? Places like New York City. If you look back, Amos was like, many grades behind right mm -hmm. and like the community rallied around him getting an education when it made sense for him right in this kind of homogenous community yep. in this situation like it's not being said there's kind of this implication that like these poor children um like they're just not able to obey they just want to work they want to do whatever they want like in certain communities closer to where we live, this was often Quebecois, French Canadian children. There was this perception that they were just disobedient. They would do whatever they wanted. They misbehaved in school. And it's not really true. It's like they weren't being set up for success by adults who can and should have known better. Yeah. <laughs> like I, I think of this like very jarring statistic of there was a school system or it may have been the whole city in Baltimore where they started instituting um, eye tests for every child. And this, like, I don't want to call it miraculous because it's a structural failing. All these children started doing so much better in school because literally mm. no one had ever taken the time to understand that they just couldn't see. Wow. Yeah, like, I mean, and I, what's happening. Yeah, I totally agree with you. That's what I was going to get into was another issue in the progressive era or how we think about it is sort of like the framing of, the individual versus the collective 
and who's in charge of who should be responsible for solving problems in society. And there's so much of an empowerment of individuals in this moment. And certainly in this book that reflects that worldview that like Samantha thinks I can just decide to start a school in my house. I will take responsibility for catching Nellie up and I will solve this problem. But you could also read this book a different way and say like, wow, what a structural failing for this town. And you can actually point the finger at Samantha's school and say, hey, you're probably not paying any taxes because you're a nonprofit. What if you paid your taxes and we had more funding for this public school, didn't have 30 kids to a classroom and had greater access to resources to, I don't know, help kids who are starting at very different access points because of, you know, work requirements or whatever. Maybe they can't even afford to have a night school option at this school. Like, that's a way to think about this problem structurally. Like, what kind of revenue are we not getting from some of these nonprofit actors in town who are likely, like, would vote against helping these very people? So instead, we have tasked an eight or nine year old with starting a secret school in her attic. And, you know, she gets the personal feeling of a win, like, well, I helped you. Like, that's this sort of like white savior benevolence. It's also very typical of the progressive era. But I kept thinking like and then as now, like, let's call out some of these like structural issues in the town and at least like redistribute some of this revenue. When. I um, used to do more Gilded Age history. People would always talk about the income tax as if it was like the worst thing to ever happen to rich people when truth be told, particularly in the past 40 years, they've turned out okay. Mm -hmm. Um, And people would talk about it like it was a plague that descended, like this ended with the income tax. (laughs) It it wasn't right. It wasn't fair. (laughs) Kids um, who weren't rich started to go to school. Oh my God. But the framing, the framing of the peak into the past, like, assumes that you're as comfortable as Samantha Mm -hmm. because it says not everyone went to a school like this. And it's actually that almost no one went to a school like this. Right. Um, And I think of I think of the difference. I I do think this is a very smart book. It's very reflective of progressive era. Um, I think of the difference between Addie and that tender moment of her teaching her mother words like which is i think genuinely one of the most moving scenes i've ever read in really a book i mean i I think that scene is so brilliant yes what samantha and nelly make you think about and i don't know that i have a definitive like this is my opinion this is all it is is people who are not peers socially can they be friends in america in that time in our Mm -hmm. time like part of the joke of rich best friend check on tiktok is like, why is this person friends with me? I'm not of their same social class. Right. Yeah. We're a society that pretends it doesn't matter. But that's, I mean, that's the whole premise is like, I have, it used to be like marry out of your social class. Now it's just like, oh, I get all these privileges because my friend is of this class. Right. And I think something that's weird about that is in there, the subject of friendship itself is wildly understudied, especially within history. And I would love to see more work on history, but on the history of friendship, but the story that we tell about the United States, both in histories of early America and in just, you know, how we like walk around our lives today is that like, this is not a place where we respect deference or we require deference. Like in early America, you were expected to defer to your betters. That was just part of it. And then when we became the United States, allegedly, according to like Gordon Wood and others, that magically disappeared overnight and everyone was equal, you know, 
spoiler alert, that's not true because here we are with TikTok, my best friend's rich check. But, <laughs> you know, what are the terms of a friendship in which deference is informally required? And yeah. a book that I just read in galley form that's really excellent that's coming out, I think, in a week or two is called Big Friendship. Um, by Ann Freeman and Aminu Toso, who host um, Call Your Girlfriend, but they're um, longtime best friends, but they actually write kind of like social history of friendship, and it's a memoir of their friendship. And they talk a lot about kind of inequalities in their own friendship based on like racial difference, class difference, um, kind of anxieties about talking about money. So these are not things that we've navigated or solved in 2020. But it is interesting, and I think a really strength of this book that she kind of definitely can point to that. I will say, this is not a critique, but I wasn't prepared for it, that illustration of Nellie watching herself in the factory. It's dark. It's dark. Like, I'm basically reading this book, and I'm like, okay, like, loving the fashions, like, Edith, question mark, dot, dot, dot. I get to this illustration, okay? Now, keep in mind, the major illustrations before this, like, Samantha serves some really fierce looks in this book, okay? I get to this illustration on page 47, and it was, like, stumbling, like, you're flipping through, like, Thomas Kincaid paintings, and then you get to, like, the scream, and you're like, what? Like, you're just not prepared. It, like, jumps out at you. Nellie is also, for someone who's not been to school, um, you know, she has so much confidence and she has so much knowledge and i think that's what they're trying to say is like don't just privilege a rich girl's education people who have been kept out of schooling still have um a lot to teach and and have their own brilliance what's kind of amazing is i don't think any nine-year-old is capable of this level of analysis they paid us one dollar and 80 cents a week that's why thread is so cheap. Ooh. And I was like, okay, I don't know if she would go there. Wow. Samantha stared at Nellie. She couldn't move. Only her scalp was tingling and her arms had a strange ache. Like, say what you want, Samantha feels. Samantha feels like there's a neurasthenic moment that jumps out there where she's like tingling in my scalp, feelings in my arms. And I'm like, take to your bed, ma'am. You are not well. I, I do feel like, you know, we have changed hearts and minds on Samantha and we have prompted people to go back and reread these books. And Allie book and sea glass hunter shared on Goodreads that listening to our show made her want to go back to this. And she describes this book as Samantha descending deeper into a savior complex. I think that's very real. And I think that anyone who loves playing school this much, it's a 911 for me. And I know that person is you. So I'm like, I'm examining myself. I'm examining you right now in this moment. But it's like there is such a savior vibe to this moment in history, what she's doing. And her complete lack of self-awareness. I think what's kind of stunning is that she we see her in real time get self-awareness about what factories actually mean and how like in a way like there's this really nice thing that the book does which it kind of familiarizes children with the idea of like a declension narrative that like not all narratives are progress and you should even really question the ones that are especially framed as progress that they might not be such be so and but at the same time it's like she has no self-awareness that maybe starting a school in her attic and like being the sage on the stage for her friend 
from like this very class, like privileged position might also be sort of inappropriate, even if it comes from a Mm well-intentioned place. And I think that also speaks to the times in which this was published, that it sort of tells Unpleasant Company that they sort of think that kind of benevolence or helping in your community is like completely like net neutral or net positive. I think that's where people are are speaking more and more about the difference between charity and mutual aid. Mm-hmm. That, you know, charity is still usually about keeping the same power structures in place, but imparting a gift like top down. Yes. And then mutual aid is about recognizing. And I think about this constantly. It's like wearing a mask. Those kinds of behaviors are about saying, like, I want to be part of a society in which mutual respect is upheld. Right. Yes. Mutual aid is about saying like our survival is is tied into each other and I care about you enough to change my life to make sure that we are in this together. Um I do think she's nine yes. and she's trying. Yes. And I think it's it's a different it's a different story than I had remembered because I kind of in my mind, like I reduced her to kind of just being like a foppish like playgirl of the Victorian era and maybe that's coming in her birthday but I do give her credit for listening to what Nellie said processing and changing her whole script yes I actually had a very positive like I had the same experience you had which is I don't fully remember the plots of these at all but my sense of her was that you know, she was a bit more self-centered than I think she is. Like I see, I think seeing how contemplative or reflective she is when confronted by her friend with information that's new and perhaps like asks her to upend her worldview on a particular topic. The fact that she goes away, does that work, comes back and acts differently is impressive. Um, I also think like I'm starting to see like why people are writing to me and saying Samantha's the queerest of them all. Like you'll see. Because there is kind of like Carol Smith Rosenberg, like friendship vibes happening in this book of just like such mutual love and admiration between Nellie and Samantha that it sort of like teeters over into like you can see like kind of crush language. And again, they're nine and I'm like not trying to be inappropriate, but I do think that vibe is there. Um, So I do get what people are writing to us about on that front. So I noticed that. And I also just want to say, I also noticed early in the book that we get a from nowhere and never referenced again detail that Samantha is being forced by Grand Mary to wear flannel underwear to prevent her getting consumption. And I am really nervous about this. First of all, I'm obsessed with consumption. So like if we go on a TV journey, like watch out. However... I can't, I'm not prepared for that to actually happen. I don't, I don't think that we will. I, part of why I'm very glad you brought that up is Nellie kind of brings everything full circle by saying like, you know, how do you think Jesse gets cheap thread or like, how do you, how do you think things are made cheap enough for you to have so much and other people so little? Um, There's a lot that you can read about factory life from this time, including Liddy, which is like classic children's literature but like basically the same kind of story as nelly there's a book called um where am i wearing that i think does a good job of connecting like how your clothes are made to global politics Hmm. and sorry i'm kind of ramming this in but i think it's an important film the true cost is like the modern nelly story Hmm. it's about like the true cost of fast fashion no no i think that's really important i would also jump on to that that 
There's a great podcast called Articles of Interest, which just wrapped its first season, but the first season of the its second season, but the first season explores the origins of different like kind of staple fashions. And there's an episode oh, cool. on denim and how denim is actually made. And also it kind of speaks to what you're saying about the global politics of clothes that a lot of people don't often think about where these where this comes from, what the environmental and labor implications are. Um, and it's it's just very well done. So I highly recommend that as well. Yeah, I'm I'm so excited because I know next time we're going to get a surprise. But I think all of these books for me have been a surprise because they're so much better than I remember. And I think the progressive era still has a lot to teach us. Like, I do think that Samantha might grow up and become a socialist and like raid her inheritance to start like a mutual aid tenement house. I don't know. I would love that. That was my prediction for her was that she becomes a social worker. Um, also, tenement houses are very much like queer spaces. Yeah. And so is social work, actually. If you read the history of social work, there is a lot of um, issues with, um, you know, they would basically break into people's apartments because a lot of what was fueling them was like, we need to see your environment so we can make an yeah. adjustment so to make you air quotes normal um, in medical situations. And oftentimes they were adjusting women who had what we would now call queer sexual desire, which at the time was not or- was not recognized as such. But they would not fully police that at all because it was like a little bit too much like the calls coming from inside the house. So like there's letters where a lot of their patients would be like, I think you're hot. And they'd be like, ah, like anyway, you're fine. (laughs) Bye. Like it's it's too much. It's too much. But just to say, I think you're right. And I think it would work out. Oh, thank you. Just an idea for fanfic. Just putting it out there. I think you're hot. (laughs) Eugenics is not. Like when she's when she's in the kitchen and she thinks that the housekeeper is talking about the stove. It's like she's actually running lines for when the social worker stops by. Yep. Well, when Nellie's like, we have better teachers, too. When Samantha's like, my school is cool. Like our school is just as good as your school. And she's like, we have better teachers, too. I was like, oh, God, here we go. It's too much. We'll we'll talk about the queer history of teaching some other time, but. If you yes. haven't read Charity and Sylvia, it's like there's a reason women got into the game when they did. Yeah. Yep. Hiding in plain sight is, you know, an important piece of this history. And as Uncle Guard knows, I mean, I will say in the past <laughs> week, I went and rewatched that clip. I tried to rewatch that clip, which Anna had never seen of my um, secret addiction yeah. or my so-called whatever that show is called. Were the guys in love with his car? I was like, I need to see this. Like, Uncle Guard has reminded me of this man who's in love with his car. And honestly, it was so fraught. Also, that man genders his car male, which I totally forgot. So it's like he's having, like, a queer relationship with his car. And I was like, this is, I know it's Pride Month, but, like, it's too much. I have to just, like, I had to hit pause. Anna was, like, covering her face. She couldn't take it. And I was like, it's too much. I have to shut this down. You should have told me because I have that clip saved on my phone. Like there's just things that I have saved for just yes. like my reference. One of them is the man who's dating blow up balloon animals. Yep. That's a classic. Like there's a, and then the woman, I think we've talked about this before, but I will never stop talking about it. She marries a an abandoned carnival ride and then she cheats on him and then she apologizes and they like renew their vows. It's... <laughs> 
I can't we'll share that some other time. It's too much. But the man, when he's like making out with his car and then they cut to his roommate who like seems like a yeah. perfectly fine, normal person. Like I don't want to use not. normal because it's like that's a fraught term. But, you know, she basically was like, yeah, there's a lot going on here and I don't know what to do. She's like, I can't begin to like if that man offered you a ride to work, you imagine no. that I would be like, absolutely not. I don't know what's going on in this car. That's polygamy, Mary. Yes, it's wrong. I was like, how dare you involve me in, like, you cheating on this man? That car is your sister wife now. My God. Do you think their song was Missy Elliott, Beep Beep, (laughs) I Got the Keys to the Jeep? No, I don't. (laughs) I don't. I do think that's his song. Oh, really? (laughs) That's fraud. But he seemed like maybe he's woke in other ways. And so he's like, it's Missy Elliott for me. I I celebrate her queerness and my own with this car. Thank you. Someone needs to take our mics away. We need to stop. Things have devolved. Um, so anyway, <laughs> we'll be back. We'll be back. There'll be a surprise. I can't wait to talk about Christmas in July. Can't You're welcome. Um, keep sending us your Samantha hot takes. Know that we care about you. Know that we read them. Know that like also when you kind of come for us very hard, you kind of are being a Samantha. And I say mm-hmm. that with like 100% respect. respect. But yes. we also like... We're Molly's. We get it. I had to break it to someone. She might be a kit this week. I don't I see. Said, I've not read those books, so I don't fully know. But people say kit's really cool. Well, I said, you know, even if you don't think the glove fits, like sometimes you must a kit. <laughs> Sorry, I was sipping on my polar during no, that. That was a mistake. Um, yeah, oh, my God. Polar, please sponsor us. We would love actual ads of products that we would love to use. So if you have a business... Allison, look, Allison's losing it. If you have a business you want to advertise with us, that's cool stuff. Please be in touch. Please support our merch shop, which is on our website, and support the artist who designed most of our really wonderful merch, Brie Morris. We linked to her work. She's fantastic. Yeah, she's really, really awesome. She did amazing designs. And for those who might be wondering, we started this process with her when we were just about to start Kirsten. So we haven't asked her as of yet, but likely will to do some Addy designs, Samantha designs and so on. So there are some things up there on those characters, um, but none made by Brie, who's an actual artist. So we will be circling back and doing more merch designs as we go on. But that's just where we started and why. So Allison, if people have hot takes, you know, clips that you need to see, theories, want to talk about eugenics, how can people get in touch with you? If you're married to your car, you can reach out to us at American Girls Pod on Instagram, at All Girls Pod on Twitter. You can also find our website, American Girls Podcast. If you have other information, um, including car wedding photos, I'm yes. at Allison Horrocks on both things. Um, if people want to continue the Freddie Mercury Uncle Guard dialogue, where should Please. they find you? You know, if you want to call me from your dedicated landline in your bedroom for your business, a la Babysitter's Club, unfortunately, I won't be issuing my phone number on this show, but you can find me on Twitter at Mary Mahoney123 and Instagram at Mimi Mahoney. I do love all of your self made house tour videos, all of your theories, your clips your links. Truly, when people write to us, it makes our day. And we do write back to everyone. Sometimes it takes me a minute, but I do. we do do that. And I love your emails. Like, it's just, 
it's so fun being a part of this community. So I guess just like having had a down week with nothing bad in particular happening, but just feeling, you know, like the low grade anxiety that I think everyone has. I just want to be reflective and just say thanks to everyone who listens, as I'm sure Allison does too. Like it truly makes our day to get to do this show and be part of this group. So we're looking forward to doing a group watch of Babysitter's Club. God knows what else, Allison. I don't know. Thank you for making us laugh. Thank you for making us think. And and even when you come for us with Samantha Takes, we appreciate you. I want to know what historical man we think Uncle Guard should be with. Oh, yeah. So let's all just reflect on that. With that said, thank you for listening. Thank you.